When you design a city for children, everyone benefits. And if you design a city for young children, of course everyone benefits. Because if you're safe and comfortable and you have fun as you travel through the city as a child, then why shouldn't adults as well? Snage, thank you so much for being on Bike Talk. Terrence Houston is co-hosting with me, Lindsay Sturman. And Lucas, you are the content and communications manager of Bikes, spelled B-Y-C-S. And you're working mostly with research editorial programs and transnational bike advocacy. That is correct. Yeah, thanks for having me. It really all kicked off with the appointment of Amsterdam's first bicycle mayor, uh, Anna Luton. Was really, we envisioned this as a member, a representative member of the community that could liaise between government stakeholders, the civil society, but also businesses and all organizations involved in cycling um, to make sure that um, everyone's needs and desires were um, considered by policy. It actually came from the concept of the nightmare that was already existent in Amsterdam uh, that had a similar function, a member of society wanted to kind of ease uh, conversations between businesses, clubs, bars, and governments and cool. neighbors. And our founder, uh, you know, thought that this would be really important for cycling. The total share of cycling here is 30%. That creates a lot of problems as well in terms of congestion, safety, all of these things need to be maintained. It's not just this wonderful utopian uh, cycling landscape. Uh, things need to be readjusted and reconsidered and um, kind of iteratively developed, um, you know, in a sustained uh, manner over time constantly so well, now you're breaking my heart because i thought it was simply <laughs> cycling heaven you know i think Lindsay and i mostly we just this is just like a a vehicle for us to ask you to adopt us so we can get to the <laughs> netherlands no but so, you see i think that's a really interesting point that you make because people often think that amsterdam has always been this kind of utopian cycling land where uh you know everybody cycled but if you look at the like even photos of Dutch cities in the 50s and the 60s, uh, when kind of the whole system of automobility was becoming to um, become, um, you know, let's say pervasive in all parts of the world, or at least in uh, most industrial parts of the world, um, the Dutch kind of lost a ton of cycling motor share during that time. Uh, you know, public spaces or parking lots like uh, you see uh, today in a lot of US cities, people were cycling less. You know, people were dying. Uh, and what happened is that in the 70s, I think in like 1971, over 450 kids under the age of 14 were killed by cars. Wow. People kind of stood up and were like, they, there was a movement called Stop the Kindermord, literally meaning stop killing our children, led by women, mothers that just were every week protesting against like the domination of the private vehicle in the city that had, you know, created worse air quality, uh, no space for children to play in the street, uh, you know, all of those things that you see in cities that have really prioritized the cars for decades. And the government listened. At that time, there was the 1973 oil crisis. The government was trying to think about how to uh, decrease uh, dependence on oil. But it, you know, it really boils down to strong voice from civil society accompanied by the right political will. And then what you see unfold today in terms of like this cycling utopia is, you know, 20, 30 years of sustained investment in cycling, like active transportation, public transportation, and reducing and limiting the space for cars in the city. Um, it, it's, it's doable. And the Dutch weren't just born into this. They have committed to it. It's inspiring. Yeah. 
So in terms of the bike mayor program, can you explain how it works and how does LA get one? Like it's kind of like a, a figurehead, a representative of the cycling community that can voice the broader concerns of people that use bikes for transportation in the city to different stakeholders and be that bridge between public sector, civil society, but also businesses, etc. And then what we do is we connect those uh, bicycle mayors together. So we um, create working groups on particular topics that could have relevance in like a cross-cultural uh, context. Uh, there are a lot of similarities in the challenges that are faced um, by, you know, bike advocates, but also just like planners in the city. And so learning from others is really important there. So we set up working groups, we, uh, you know, facilitate uh, network connection and the sharing of best practices and resources and stuff like that. And what it also does is that it kind of creates a transnational movement around the need for cycling, not just as transportation, but as social transformation as a very showing that, you know, you know, whether you're in Mexico, whether you are in Italy, whether you are in the US or whether you are in India, having more people on bikes in their daily lives will bring about cleaner air, child friendly cities, local economic development, resilience, health, mental health benefits, all of these things that are super simple. It's a 200 year old invention um, that has been, and I'm very glad to see um, it kind of take a more center stage in the recent year, but that has essentially been kind of left as a secondary consideration by a lot of city planners um, when, you know, it's so simple, cheap and reliable that it can bring about really, really like a systemic change in the way that um, movement in our city happens. So, yeah. I think one of the things that I was really impressed with about going through the website of your org is how it seems to create these toolkits for advocates, you know, for lack of a better term, where all of these great talking points and arguments and data are sort of grouped in one place because I know that when I first started doing advocacy for bike lanes in Los Angeles or defending a road diet in Los Angeles, you felt like you were starting from scratch trying to get all the professional information of best practices and why it was a good idea. Um, and you have all these awesome um, case studies and such, and I would love to learn more about them. Like it said that your org was working on a study uh, linking early childhood development with riding bikes. You know, what is that study found? But what we were trying to understand is First of all, the benefits that facilitating active travel, in particular cycling here, could bring to caregivers. Because as we know, that also touches upon a really crucial gender component to this discussion, which is most people that carry out caregiving trips in the city are women. Transportation is expensive. They trip chain more. Uh, you know, it's just like essentially transit systems have been built by men and designed for men. And that has put a huge burden on, uh, you know, 50% of our urban population. Uh, so if, for example, a uh, caregiver can, instead of, you know, taking a bus to school, dropping the kid off, then going to run errands, then going to work, then coming back and doing that kind of constellation of trips that are expensive, but can use the bike, first of all, it's more energy efficient, it's cheaper, it's fun. We found that, you know, uh, there were greater positive connections between very young children and their parent when they can share, you know, the experience of the city at a cognitive level and they can point to something they, they can both see together. There's just like way closer of a connection when you have a young child on the front or on the back of your bike. 
Uh, something else is in terms of creativity. We found in our kind of academic review that if you, uh, there, there was a study that, that, that showed, you know, children that rode the bike to school and children that were in their car and they were asked to draw, uh, to map their neighborhood, the ones that were on their bike could do that way better. But also in terms wow. of the way that they depicted their neighborhood, they were more creative. It's stimulating. It's something that is healthy. So when you design a city for children, everyone benefits. And if you design a city for young children, of course everyone benefits because if you're safe and comfortable and you have fun as you travel through the city as a child, then why shouldn't adults as well? I know some of the strong arguments in terms of getting those protected bike lanes down to South LA has been when you look at the Vision Zero program in the city of Los Angeles, the vast majority of the Vision Zero high injury network is in formerly redlined segregated neighborhoods. You know, the most dangerous streets were designed purposely to go through communities of color, you know, and, and I feel like when we add the safe infrastructure, we're actually undoing the legacy of racism and we're undoing um, the legacy of redlining. And um, it's a challenging balance to, to take because the other thing that I ran into when I was doing some ag advocacy in South LA is that often it's the people who have the most power in South LA who are actually making the decisions when we talk about the community making the decision in South LA, it's still actually, oh, the owner of the trucking company along the route in South LA who's having the loudest voice as the community member. And trying to balance those things has been a challenge. Just to jump off where Terrence was saying, is, is there, a, a model of community engagement where you start small. There was a very, very rapid response from the city of Oakland there uh, that was maybe seen as too rapid. And there were also, you know, people from uh, East Oakland that like that wasn't really beneficial to them. And so they worked together. I think it was this process of like iterative urbanism, uh, as I think he's called it, where um, and he gave me this wonderful analogy of uh, when you move in with roommates into a house you don't just like <laughs> put the furniture in the first place you kind of move it around until everybody's <laughs> happy with it and then you and then you're like okay let's let's now That's sit right. on this couch layout and uh and see and and it's also much cheaper to do it that way because if you start with like temporary activations thing like that um, and then you work with the local community to understand, okay, if this is accepted and appreciated and needed, then you can install more permanent fixtures after that process of iteration. Um, and that saves you a ton of money from, instead of investing uh, a, a lot, a lot of money into a project that in the end is not relevant to the community. And I think, you know, this type of like temporary activation um, or like temporary, uh, uh, even like the pop-up bike lanes, which were like, everyone was talking about um, as a COVID response is interesting, you know, in, in a lot of contexts that we work in through the Bicycle Mayor Network, we've seen these as, you know, really valuable in some cities, like in some areas, they've been removed and others, they've been made permanent. And that's where you see the value of it. If it doesn't work, then we'll take them out. If they stay, then they stay. And of course, we want them to stay and we want to create more uh, protected cycling infrastructure like they're there really needs to be a move beyond this idea that paint is a bike lane. If you could dream big for LA, what would you like to see for bikes in LA? Space should be removed from cars. Absolutely. There are way too many um, yeah, areas of the city that are solely accessible if you have a private vehicle. Um, and there's so much um, space that is dead in LA. And I think that that's really something that I... Um, 
Yeah, take back from my experience there, the amount of parking lots and idle cars that are just scattered around the landscape, which could be green space, which could be playgrounds, which could be public space, which could be wider sidewalks uh, and protected bike lanes is is staggering, which could be affor uh, um, affordable housing as well. You know, like imagine if you removed even just a third of all, which sounds, of course, insane, but we're, we're talking here uh, uh, in a more like utopian uh, um, lens, a third of parking spaces in LA, what could you do with that? And I think imagining that possibility is also a conversation starter. I think there is that need to dream big to create those paradigm shifts. Um, and yeah, like any step of the way is, is a way is a way forward. Um, so, so, you know, for short trips in LA, the transition to the bicycle shouldn't be too difficult if there's actual political will and, um, you know, investment in the infrastructure. It's a city that has wonderful weather to cycle <laughs> all year round. Yes. You know, I, I cycled back from my office to be in a quieter place. I was in the pouring rain, the Dutch cycle in the rain. But if I could do that, you know, in the sun with 20 degrees Celsius every day, I mean, why not? And especially when you look at the numbers of short trips in, in, in Los Angeles, I think it is people really need to, you know, I'm not saying that the cars will disappear in LA. LA is a city that has been built around the car. But if you invest in public transit and if you make first last mile options available, like those new mobility um, companies that have popped up and that you balance that with just like more access to bicycles, et cetera, then I think, you know, it can be a multimodal city. And I think it, that is where it should be. And I know that, you know, the, the, the kind of Garcetti administration dreams of that. But I, I think we should think beyond just like shared cars and autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles, but really think about, yeah, key amenities, closer proximity to the home, investment in those neighborhoods, and just like greater space for active transportation, um, and that pairing that with public transportation. LA is sort of famously a city of like 400 small towns. Could you imagine going neighborhood by neighborhood? Would that be enough? Or does it really have to be whole city as a network? Transit systems have been designed for the movement of able-bodied men that go to the central business district to work. And so even if you look at bus lanes or bus networks, they often go from residential areas to the economic core of those cities. But for a lot of people that don't make those trips, then they are disadvantaged in terms of their access to transportation. So I don't particularly think there should just be connectivity between the core and like residential neighborhoods in LA. There should be inter-neighborhood connectivity so that people that need to travel within their neighborhood uh, for their daily trips or that don't necessarily need to go to downtown because they work in uh, office building uh, can still be safe on the streets. And uh, that's really something that is that is key here, not just creating those uh, nodal corridors of access that, you know, most often favor um, like, yeah, white collar, privileged um, men, to be honest. And you know, what you're saying is supported by the data. 47% of trips in LA are less than three miles, which are, you <laughs> right. know, easily bikeable. So even in Los Angeles, a quote unquote car centric city. But, um, you know, one of the interesting things about your org is that you guys don't just talk about infrastructure, but you talk about a culture of cycling. And there's some programs that I would love to learn about, like the Bicycle Heroes program, which was, I guess, like, how would kids design their neighborhoods? Yeah, this is a this is a really fun program. And I think that this, um, yeah, this is a 
This is actually the central point of our organization. Youth are, first of all, fantastic ambassadors in general on all issues. I think if you can uh, convince uh, a child to become an advocate, first of all, it's the future generations. And so that's how to get the next generation to just start cycling um, in a more kind of holistic manner. Um, but also, yeah, they, they're really big spheres of influence in the family. Uh, they're really important city stakeholders and they're extremely intuitive urban planners. We go and engage with children in schools from nine to 12 years old. And we ask them, if you could make cycling around your school and around your neighborhood safer, more comfortable and more fun, what would you do? We it. ask them, why do you like cycling to school? What, how does it make you feel? Uh, what are the greatest challenges that you face on a bicycle when you're going to school or you know, going to a friend's house? And they sketch out ideas, they sketch out um, kind of solutions. We get them to really think creatively and then we get, we kind of have a yeah, jury that selects the top ideas and then we invite them to a longer um, workshop called like kind of a co-creation session um, where they can really develop those ideas that they've had. And some of them are incorporated or considered by the local planning authority. And so we create these kind of linkages between those stakeholders that are too often forgotten in the city and elevate their voices as the voices of of important stakeholders in the city, get them to think about um, their ideas and they figure out things that often adults overlook. Um, you know, when we were doing that report with the Bernard Van Leer Foundation on cycling for toddlers and caregivers, um, something that they do that's really compelling is they have a program called Urban 95, um, which ask city stakeholders and other city stakeholders to imagine their city from 95 centimeters. And honestly, mm. I, I suggest try doing this next time you're in the street, just crouch and look how big cars look. Look how, you know, uncomfortable pavements can be or scary or loud or overwhelming the city can be if it is not thought from a child's perspective. Tirana, the city, the capital of Albania, is doing some really good work with children. And uh, the mayor, uh, Erion Village, always says, yeah, children are a third of my kind of demographic. Why would I not focus on them? You know, like it's a third of my population. So, of course, they deserve a third of my investment. Um, and we forget about that. Um, and it's unfortunate because I think, you know, um, the city is not comfortable for children um, in many parts of the world. So we saw that you are, have these incredible partnerships in India. We are a very small, young, Amsterdam-based advocacy group. We do not have the local knowledge or the expertise to coordinate a network that is very dynamic at a regional level or that has um, particular needs and challenges and solutions that are place-based. However, we do really feel that the exchange of knowledge and ideas and the circulation of that movement is really important. And so as regions grow in the network, the Bicycle Bayer Network in India has 40 member cities currently, 40 representatives from civil society there. Uh, we want to decentralize our organization. And the way that we're doing this is by setting up foundations. Um, this is our first pilot. We incorporated uh, Bikes India Foundation that's gonna be based in Bengaluru uh, very recently. And they will essentially, we have three directors there um, that are going to be both helping the coordination of the Bicycle Mayor Network and create, you know, exchange between them and make sure that uh, new bicycle mayors 
can join and, and vet those new members, etc. And also conduct research, conduct place-based research that is relevant for the Indian urban context. And so that's really exciting because we don't necessarily feel comfortable from Amsterdam coordinating such a um, global network. You know, it's, it's a very Eurocentric way of thinking about this. Uh, we have learned about the power of civil society from our experience in the Netherlands. And we know that investing in protected bike networks is essential for safety. And that's kind of applies to, to, to anywhere. But the solutions for Bogota, the solutions for Mumbai, the solutions for even Milan might not be the same. Like the goal is not to Amsterdamify, but to share those learnings and those experiences kind of reiterate about the Bicycle Mayor Network. I think the idea here is to really create a movement of local leaders that can start growing this idea of having a representative from civil society um, be that bridge between, you know, different stakeholders in the city. Um, I think elevating the voice of those stakeholders, whether they're long term, long time activists, advocates, etc., is really important because there's often too much focus on expertise um, in transportation planning, uh, but community leaders, advocates, activists have expertise and have greater expertise than often any transit authority in terms of what is good for their neighborhood. How, how do you guys elect your bicycle mayors? We have this process that we've developed over um, the four years where the network has grown from one to 105 cities in 34 countries where we have an application process uh, where we request three letters of endorsement from key stakeholders in the city. We also have a list of questions to prepare from the person that is interested uh, that, you know, cover, um, you know, actions that as bicycle mayor, uh, he, she or they would like to carry out in their city, specific challenges, um, you know, stakeholders that they would like to collaborate with, et cetera, that is then reviewed by the global networks team at Bikes, as well as a few uh, members of the network already. And then we make a decision. The, the term is two years. The first step with kind of getting someone in a new city is to make that role known and understood by the local community. So that's why we go about this. And as we progress and there's still the desire to kind of retain someone within that role within the network in a city, we want to be shifting towards more, let's say, democratic uh, ways of appointing um, that kind of figurehead. It is a volunteer position. Uh, we don't have a lot of uh, demands. And so that's why we allow ourselves that space. It's really someone to represent the community that is interested in the exchange of knowledge, etc. Um, but yeah, it's uh, uh, for now, that's how we're going. We also have a toolkit that uh, we've developed so that if a local organization uh, would want to help us and get the word out about this role, then um, they can kind of like take it off the shelf and have everything they need uh, to spread the word. Because obviously from Amsterdam, it's limited what we can do. We can reach out to key stakeholders, gauge interest, um, do some Twitter campaigns, but for it to really work, there needs to be local buy-in and we want to make it as easy as possible for an organization, let's say the LA County Bicycle Coalition, to say, hey, we'd like to make a, a call out in our community to find a representative member to become part of this network. How can we do it? And then we have, you know, social media templates, processes that are described, toolkits, things like that, to uh, make that as seamless and as 
in the hands of the local organizations as possible. I think it's such a great organization because it feels like this organic crowdsourced bottom-up wisdom that meets with sort of like the top-down, you know, engineering people. And by meeting in the middle and creating this, this you know, organic movement, you really get the wisdom from the ground at the same time you're marrying it with that sort of Dutch engineering. And so um, I really appreciate you sharing these great toolkits and tools and all that stuff. Yeah, no, it was lovely to chat. Um... Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. <laughs>